So good evening, everybody. If you've been counting the precepts, the training guidelines that I've been talking about, you would know there's one left. So this would be like the trequel or the third sequel. Or, but I'm actually not going to do that. Maybe next week, because I don't want to leave one out. But um, at this time in the retreat, I really want to talk to you, and we agreed that it was a good thing to have a talk on the seven factors of awakening, because these factors are appearing and really blossoming in your experience, and it's important to recognize them. And so as I was researching and preparing what I wanted to share with you, I also found a list of the five things that lead to awakening, which I thought might, under the circumstances, interest you. Um, And they are admirable friends, sila, which is what we've also been studying together, the, these um, training guidelines, mindfulness of our goodness, virtue, hearing the Dharma, some effort in abandoning unskillful qualities and cultivating skillful ones, and awareness of impermanence. And everybody here has all five, right? We have admirable friends, each other. We really can hardly do anything unadmirable here in the silence and with the um, mindfulness guidelines that we've adopted. So we have admirable friends, we have sila, we have hearing the Dharma, And however imperfectly I may share it with you, you're still hearing it, and it's still a dharma. And then everybody's trying to let go of the things that torment them and encourage the things that are uplifting. And everybody here, all of us, are keenly aware of impermanence. I mean... We can't really miss that. So these are the five things that lead to awakening, and this is a path. And as Pascal said so eloquently last night, there is a path, and you are on it. We are on it. This is the good news of of Buddhist practice. And this path actually can take us to the end of our world. So we're going to study tonight the seven factors of awakening. And Winnie already talked about one of them, which is virya, effort, wise effort, um, energy, sometimes translated as enthusiasm. And Leela talked about equanimity, And the other ones, they're divided into sort of two categories, the energizing or arousing ones, which are virya, energy, effort, joy, and investigation, 
And this word investigation, it really means investigation of the Dharma, investigation of what's true um, here. And then the calming ones are calm, concentration, and equanimity. So the focus here is to just begin to recognize what these qualities are so you can so we can appreciate them wherever we find them in our experience because that's how they work i always wondered about this i was talking to jack because of coming from uh training in zen where we didn't really we didn't really learn the buddhist teachings actually um in this way and so i just wondered are these the factors that when you're enlightened, you see them? Or, how, I mean, how does this work? But how it seems to work is that the more we see them, like anything, when it receives attention, it strengthens and grows in the light of that attention. So the more we see them and recognize them, the more we strengthen them. And then they begin to suffuse our experience. And this really does happen. So now, yeah, we're on the same path as all the great yogis, saints, bodhisattvas, um, Buddhas, enlightenment, enlightened ones. And, And the thing is, like us, they all had to start somewhere. They had to start somewhere. And where did they start? They started where we start, with our own wild minds and hearts flying in loop-de-loop, round-and-round, same patterns, and our own just getting overpowered by emotions and feeling crazy. And they started like us right where they were, going for refuge in these teachings, listening to teachers and surrounding themselves hopefully with spiritual friends dedicated to like you using their lives well and finding compassionate ways to work with all the all the reactivity so i'm just going to name them the five that we're looking at tonight and tell you a story from my teachers, from each one. And you know, the arousing ones, children actually have, they have a bead on these arousing factors. You might have noticed that, you know, the joy and the interest and curiosity and looking into everything. And, um, oh, and I forgot to mention mindfulness. Mindfulness is the one that balances everything. Um, but they, they really they really have these arousing factors. And I think as we grow older, we have more of the calming ones, just naturally. You know, I think of um, the difference of being a parent or a grandparent. And certainly, as a parent, it's just not as calm. Grandparents have more natural, natural equanimity. And... So this 
So this first one, mindfulness, we've spoken quite a bit about, about this one, uh, this kind attentiveness, loving awareness. And the story that I want to tell you that illustrates this, it's, it's a story about uh, traveling with my Korean Zen teacher, and we were traveling with a great monk named Mahagosananda, who was, he was, his title was the Supreme Patriarch of Cambodia. And he traveled with us, a group of us, on a pilgrimage with our teacher to the great Zen temples of Korea. And it was very hot and humid at that time when we were there. And in spite of the heat and humidity, he always was wrapped in lots of robes and then he wore, before it was stylish, he wore this knit hat pulled down over his face. Um, all the surfers wear them in Venice now, but he had it. He had that look first and he wore a blanket. But, I mean, he really looked like kind of a bag monk. I don't know what, how else to express it, but there was a huge celebration for, it was part of my teacher's 60th birthday, which is a very big deal in Korea, your 60th birthday, at a temple called Sudoksa in the country. And along with many other dignitaries and teachers, Mahagosananda was invited to speak. And this, there were probably about 700 people gathered, many, many monastics, In Korea, they wear gray robes, and some of us lay people. And he stood up in his simple saffron Theravadan robes. He wasn't, at that point, wearing all his other um, stuff. He just stood there very simply, and he said, in the language of the country that had colonized his, in French... I'll say it in French, but then I'll translate. What he said as he stood at the podium was simply, Je suis, tu es, il est, elle est, ils sont, elles sont, nous sommes, vous êtes, He conjugated the verb to be, the verb être. He stood there and his talk was, I am, you are, it is, he is, she is, we are, they are. So simple. And it was so true, actually, It was so completely clear. Now, he gave his talk without any notes. (laughs) He didn't need notes. They all did, actually. But it was Mahagosananda who just radiated so much metta and karuna, compassion. He was transmitting such a strong and unmistakable wave of blessing and love 
that we sat there with tears running down our faces. We just felt it. It was so powerful and palpable that we sat and wept. And they were like, you know when you just hear something so true and you have tears, it's like tears of recognition, not tears of sadness. And there was in this, he barely said anything. And yet there was this infinite love and tenderness. He really broke our hearts wide open, standing there, speaking French. Um, And this was in 1987, before the genocide in Cambodia had ended, actually. And he could still stand still, completely mindful and present, in this open field of being, All his work in the refugee camps, the killing fields where he lost all his brothers and sisters and countless of his uh, Dharma brothers and sisters, the monastics. I mean, none of this actually was going through our heads. It didn't have to. It wasn't necessary. Uh, Words weren't necessary. And the majority of the people there couldn't even understand him not the French or the English, they were Korean. And it didn't matter because his embodiment of mindful presence standing there said it all. So to be able to have that much Uh, mindfulness, and when we have that much presence, it's suffused with metta, isn't it? That's the loving awareness that he manifested. And I guess before going to the second factor, you know, I want to encourage you to just notice those moments of presence, very simple. Those moments when you're just being. And my first teacher, the one I traveled with, he had this expression, he would say, Zen mind is enough mind. It's just having that trust that to be is enough. To exist in presence is enough. And it sounds so simple, it is so simple. And by now, everybody has tasted some moments of this. And it's really important to see them because the seeing of them strengthens them. And the more each quality or each moment like this, the more we appreciate and notice, then it's more likely to be seen and appreciated and noticed the next time. And in this way comes to be more and more part of our experience. So the second factor, or the second element in awakened presence is this quality of investigation, investigation into the truth of the Dharma. And this just comes back to what Pascal said this morning when he was encouraging us to spend our day 
trying to withdraw our attention and emphasis on I, me, my, what every single experience means to me and says about me and what this might lead to for me and, and, and to withdraw our attention from all of that and to really offer our attention to the same experiences as phenomena arising in the field of consciousness. So this investigation into phenomena, what does it, what does it mean to, to do that? And so I'm going to tell you two stories. The first one is from, I was sitting with the Burmese master Upandita, And the practice in that tradition is a practice of noting and noting every single thing you do and staying very focused on the arising and falling of the breath and noting rising, falling. And then through that simple practice of staying with the rising and falling of the breath, you start to actually have insights into the nature of things. Just like, you know, one breath leads to another. You see that. That one experience arises and vanishes and is replaced by another one. And you see this over and over. And you see, these are things you've all seen. You've all seen this. You see that the way the mind brings attention to an experience is felt in the body. You start to see that you have an emotion and you feel it in your body. Or you feel something in your body and it creates certain kinds of thoughts or feelings. You've seen this connection between mind and matter. So you start to have these insights. But I think because I'd heard so many stories about Upandita and how intimidating and what a fierce teacher he was, how hard those retreats are, and, um, and I was kind of paying my dues to becoming a Vipassana teacher from being a Zen teacher by going to this retreat. So I was not in my enough mind at all. And you go and report on the experience of the breath rising and falling. And it's hard to believe that what you're seeing there is enough. And so I remember doing my report. And then, you know, when that doubt comes in, was that enough? Was that what he's really looking for? He's looking for something. Was that it? The mind starts to move. And so I uh, responded to the doubt by just suddenly like asking a question. It was a way of trying to calm down, I think. And he said, why are you searching underneath the object, the object of attention, when you've already seen its true nature? Now, I don't know about you, but seeing the true nature of something, it just sounded so glorious to me. I couldn't believe it just meant seeing what that thing is. That's enough? Could that be enough? 
But in his saying that and my hearing that, it kind of summed up my whole life of practice. I guess that's why he's you know, a good teacher. Uh, <laughs> of, of having the experience that is enough and then doubting it. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? You know, that's what he was pointing to. So when we think, when we hear that phrase, investigation of the Dharma, investigation of the truth of the Dharma, investigation of... You know, you hear these phrases and you think, that can't be what I'm doing, right? But it is. It is what you're doing. So please notice that. Please appreciate that. It is what you're doing. And another story about that. um, This is a story about my teacher, Desantsanim, the Korean... Zen master. He, at this point, he was living in Korea. He'd gone back to Korea and he would come to the States and visit. And this story took place mm, about 12 years ago, now approximately. And he, um, it was after I had gotten divorced and I had left my known world of you know, 30 years of friends and professional life and community and had kind of hit the Dharma trail. But I came back to Cambridge to visit and he was visiting from Korea and some of the old students were invited to have lunch with him at the Korean restaurant in Central Square on Prospect Street. Uh, And so we met there and we had to wait for a table that was big enough for all of us and as soon as I saw him, I just burst into tears. I was so sad at that time. I was really, it was a bottom of my life. And my former husband and I had done so much practice with him. And it was just, I just started to cry. And I was sitting next to him on this red naugahyde bench, waiting bench in the restaurant. And just kind of weeping. And he took my hand and he held my hand, this big warm hand. And we just sat there. He didn't say anything. I was weeping and he was holding my hand. And then he just whispered one word. He said, weather, W-E-A-T-H-E-R. And you know, If he hadn't been holding my hand when he said it, I don't think I could have really heard it. It would have felt like being dissed in some way. What he was saying is these emotions are like the weather. That's all it is. A rain squall passing through. But because he was... We were connected in that moment. It was a beautiful example of taking the personal, particular suffering that we have, investigating the truth of the Dharma. This is a phenomenon that arises in our experience. Our sorrow, our sad memories, our regrets. Taking that personal experience and connecting it the universal experience. Everything 
It's like clouds in the sky, right? Weather, sometimes it's sunny, beautiful, like today. Sometimes it's stormy and it rains. Thank you, Winnie, for taking care of effort. It was such a great talk. We loved it. So this investigation is an energizing element in our experience, and joy is uh, another one. And I was thinking of joy when I passed, you know, that tree, those two trees that are planted in the cement planters, they're starting to blossom. Those, you know, just a few blossoms on each one, and you can almost feel that joy of the tree as it just, I mean, it's very quiet about it, but you can feel it when you walk by and see, oh my gosh, these blossoms happening. Um, You know, yeah, so I have two joy stories for you. I got a little distracted, though, when I was preparing. I have to tell you, I, I won't go into it, but I was studying the research about animals having emotions. It was a sidetrack, but, um, but it was really interesting because now scientists are studying uh, play in animals, and they're studying... It's so interesting. It just mirrors human psychology, where in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, there's been a lot of emphasis on positive psychology, not just looking at psychopathology and problems, but um, at the causes and conditions that create positive um, factors of awakening in our experience. And the same is happening now in, um, with neuroscientists who are studying animals. They are now studying positive emotions in animals. And they've discovered uh, that when they tickle rats, they make happy vocalizations that could be called laughter. They're like these high... They can, they can only measure them with ultrasonic equipment. They do it very silently because rats, you know, they have predators. So that if they laughed really loud, their predators would hear them. <laughs> their positive emotions would quickly come to an end. So they laugh. You can only hear it with ultrasonic equipment. These high chirps of rat laughter. And mice laugh, too, when they're tickled. And they develop these simple procedures, just a couple minutes of tickling, and they can determine the phenotype of the rat. And it corresponds to our Buddhist psychology typology, which is a very simple typology, but it's basically, are you a, do you tend to be the greedy, pleasure-seeking type, or the aversive, wary type, or the more deluded, spaced out, or confused type. So they, in a couple minutes, they can decide, they can determine whether a rat is the sanguine type, the sort of pleasure-seeking, happy-go-lucky kind of mice, mouse or rat, or the melancholic, more aversive type by, I guess, how quickly they laugh or how long they laugh. I, I don't know how they tell, but this tickle response remains quite stable for the lifetime of the animal. 
Um, and they, of course, don't have the practices that we have where we can actually <laughs> change and work with the type that we are. Um, anyway, uh, there's a lot more to say about this. But high chirpy animals, when they are bred together, breed animals that are more resistant to depression. Um, anyway, I, I maybe can work this into the next talk, but um, <laughs> I was really interested in it. I mean, anybody who has pets knows that animals have emotions, but we, it's so, there's something so validating when neuroscience confirms what we know from our common sense anyway all along. So two joy stories. Um, The first one is from my teacher Maureen Stewart Roshi, who was really my heart Zen teacher. I met her in 1979 and I practiced with her. Really stopped doing Vipassana or anything else. I practiced with her until she died in uh, 1990. (coughs) And loved her. Love her very much still. And when she was dying, one day I was, uh, we were over at her house and another student had made dinner for her, but he never used to do the dishes. And so there was kind of a mess. And I was just cleaning up for her and she was lying down. Um, My former husband had given her a massage and she was lying down and resting and uh, I was straightening up she loved to cook I was straightening up the gourmet magazines on her coffee table and I realized I mean she is dying now and I wanted what do I really want to know I had said many things to her of course and we had shared a lot but about our relationship and love and so forth and and there was another chance to do that right before she died but that evening I just wanted to ask her from all your years of practice and being a Zen master and being enlightened and being you know what would you say to me now like what's the most important teaching that you would have for me at this point, now. And she did not miss a beat. And you know how when something, you know, somebody says something important to you, you remember sort of what you were looking at in that moment? Like, I just remember the gourmet magazine and the coffee table, and, and she said, live it up. And I was really surprised, because we've done so much hard practice together, you know, sitting on those cushions without moving and hair-raising pain, and I don't have to tell you about it. I mean, it wasn't what I expected her to say, and it was confusing for a moment. Like, what did she mean? Eat gourmet food or travel? Or, I mean, what exactly did she mean by live it up? But I came to understand that she really meant find the joy, in each moment, live each moment fully, and don't be afraid to. Don't be afraid to live it up.
And the second story that I want to share with you is about, is from another beloved Zen teacher. I had three, Desantsnim, the Korean teacher, Koben Chino Roshi, and Maureen Stuart Roshi. This is a story about Koben, a Japanese Soto Zen monk, um, whom I also love very much. And Koben came to visit once in Cambridge, where I lived, and I had a family member who suffered uh, from mental illness and who was, at that point, actually not in the hospital, but in a halfway house. And I asked Coben if we could visit him. And Coben wanted to. And we went there uh, to visit him. And it was a really shabby, grungy kind of house. And his room... You know, it, it was just a little room, and he, there wasn't much in it. There was an ashtray on the dresser with a lot of chewed gum in it, kind of stacked up. And I remember feeling really sad in there. And there we were. And he was happy that Coben came to visit him, and that I came. He was really happy. And Coben, he reached into the sleeves of his black robe and he took out, uh, he had so much in those sleeves. He took out some rice paper and then he had uh, an inkstone and a brush. And he asked uh, a family member for some water and he, you know, he, uh, made ink rubbing. Uh, the inkstone, and then he dipped his brush in his calligraphy brush, and he spread out the rice paper, and he made a beautiful, wasn't big, you know, maybe maybe like that. He made a beautiful calligraphy, just... And we asked him, what does it say? And he said, life blooming in the midst of suffering. It was such a beautiful expression of that moment that we were in together. The joy of my family member at this visit, the joy of being together, and the poignancy of being in that place, in that situation. Um, Really celebrating in a certain way celebrating life, but in a very, for me at least, very poignant kind of moment. The next factor is calm or tranquility. I think caring brings calm. You know, when you come and you see the teacher and maybe very agitated about something or in a very suffering condition of one kind or another, so often the instruction is to bring some tenderness, to bring some kindness, uh, to care about the pain of that moment, to have some compassion. And it really helps 
us calm down. It's, it's kind of paradoxical, what brings calm. This is a poem by Kay Ryan, who actually lives in Fairfax. I think she was a poet laureate, too, maybe a couple years ago. It's a, poet, a poem called uh, The Niagara River. And this poem is especially... It would be especially meaningful to any of you who've been to Niagara Falls. And especially if you went to Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. Because when you drive on the Canadian side to the falls, you drive next to the Niagara River. And my grandmother lived in Buffalo and we would go and visit. And I remember being fascinated by watching the river as we would go to the falls because... At first, the river, you can see there's some current in it. You can see some eddies and swirls of current. And then as you drive along from Fort Erie, there starts to be these little wavelets. And then you keep driving, and the wavelets turn into rapids. And the closer you get to the falls the more intense and broiling and frothing the rapids become. And of course, as children, we tell stories of people who went over a barrel, went over the falls in a barrel, and you can just imagine boats. At what point would it be too late to turn back? And very dramatic feeling. And then suddenly, the falls. So this is a poem called The Niagara River. As though the river were, as though the river were a floor. We position our tables and chairs upon it, eat, and have conversation. As it moves along, we notice as calmly as though dining room paintings were being replaced, the changing scenes along the shore. We do know, we do know this is the Niagara River, but it's hard to remember what that means. As it moves along, we notice as calmly as though dining room paintings were being replaced, the changing scenes along the shore. We do know, we do know this is the Niagara River, but it's hard to remember what that means. Another story about calm. I went on a second pilgrimage with my teacher, De Sansanim, this one to China. And it was in 1985, right after China first opened up after the Cultural Revolution. It was, people were still all wearing blue pajamas. And it was, they were very curious and interested in us. And we were fortunate in that one of the 
students in our group was fluent, spoke fluent Chinese, so we weren't entirely dependent on the government interpreter for understanding things. And we went, one of the places that we visited on this month of pilgrimage to ancient Zen temples and practice places was an island called Putoshan. And this entire island was devoted to Kuan Yin, to the embodiment of compassion. And all the monasteries, all the nunneries, they all were um, devoted to practices of compassion. And all the statues were of Kuan Yin. And it was a very beautiful, inspiring place to be. We visited a temple there called Dharma Rain. And there was an abbot who wore yellow robes. He was an elderly man then. And he welcomed us. And some of the temples that we visited during this trip were, um, they had been really decimated during the Cultural Revolution and they were being sort of painted and restored more for tourist purposes than places of practice. But you could feel this was a place of practice. And you could feel it in this abbot and you could feel it really in all of the places on that island. So he welcomed us and we talked and we asked him about himself and his story and he said that he had been sent to the countryside like many educated people uh, during the Cultural Revolution and he had spent 20 years working side by side with the peasants and the way that people work the earth you know, it's not like big tractors that you ride around on. It's, um, in some cases, by hand. Uh, I saw a woman who's, I mean, literally had no more fingernails left from digging with her hands in the dirt to fill buckets of earth and carry them uh, on a construction site. And so knowing this, when he talked about having done this for 20 years, we expressed some sympathy. Wow, that must have been really hard. And he just said very calmly, well, all the peasants do it. You could just feel nothing special, you know, about me. Of course, I could do that too. It was very humble, very beautiful. And then one person in our group asked him a Zen koan, which Pascal alluded to in his talk last night when he used the phrase appropriate response. And essentially he asked him, would you give us one authentic word? It's a variation of the question I had asked Maureen. You know, if you sum it all up, what would you say? One word. Again, he didn't hesitate And he had a calligraphy. It was actually behind him. And he, it was a small calligraphy, a scroll on the wall, and he pointed to it. And he read it to us. And it said, Still the same old me. 
And it was so great because, you know, you could hear that different ways. You could hear him saying the way we sometimes feel at the end of a day of practice. Still the same old me, right? And sort of ruefully. Yeah, all these years, still the same old me. Or you could hear him saying, still, like in the stillness, the same old me. Different feeling, right? Different feeling to it. Something really calm about it. The Buddha said, here's how you work with recognizing these qualities in your practice, in your own mind stream. When the factor of awakening ease or calm is present in oneself, one is aware. Calm is present. Ease is present. When ease is not present in oneself, when there is no calm, one is aware. Ease is not present in me. Calm is not present in me. Right? This is enough, you guys. One is aware when not yet born ease is being born. And when already born calm is perfectly present. So the last factor is uh, concentration, samadhi. And I have five single-spaced pages, but I I don't think there's time for that. So I'm not going to share those with you, maybe another time. It's a lot to say about something so simple as just gathering our attention and being sincere. The root of the word sincerity is actually single, single point. You know, just really being very sincere and wholehearted in our presence. And this is an important quality because, boy, we live in a culture that doesn't cultivate it, that doesn't really help us. It's just so, our attention is so dispersed and it's so precious to be here. And if you ever even think of ta- thinking about the end of the retreat, if you ever even dream of that, just remind yourself, out there, no one is emphasizing the beauty of the profound stillness of an open, steady, unified heart-mind. Just help you, you know, kind of trick your mind to say, just imagine you were out there busy in your life, the way you were before you got here, and somebody said, I'm giving you seven days at Spirit Rock, starting right now. You would be overjoyed. You'd be so into it. Anyway, so that's um, one way to bring some concentration to the next week. <laughs> but still, I said some stories, so I will tell them to you. Um, the first story, some of you have heard, it's the story of 
the first Vipassana retreat I ever sat. And I had already been sitting Zen for a couple of years. And whether I sat Zen or Vipassana, honestly, it had no, there was no theoretical. It was just when I had childcare, when I had time off work, and which retreat there was at that time. That's what determined it. So this time, uh, some friends of mine had said, you really should go sit of a Pasna retreat. Those people can really sit. And we didn't sit that long in our zendo. Maybe half an hour and then ten minutes of walking, like that. They sit for an hour. They don't move. And you know, that greedy Dharma mind, I want that. So... A bunch of us went to this retreat. It was the second retreat that Jack ever taught. And it was at a, of course, before IMS, it was at a boys' camp in Great Barrington. A lot of people were at that retreat together. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn and um, Larry Rosenberg, I think, maybe even Ram Dass was there. It was just a lot of... um, but. You know, we were just there doing the same thing, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. However, in Zen, we didn't get really precise, explicit instructions on the four foundations of mindfulness, like the ones that are given here. And that one, remember when Pascal gave that one about mindfulness of intention, that about-to moment. So I was really practicing with that and got super concentrated. And I was... It was late at night, and I was doing walking meditation outside. And, you know, this was a camp. And there was a Coke machine by the sidewalk where I was walking. And it was was lit up. It was on. And as I was walking, you know, it was very vivid colors. And it caught my attention, and I looked at it. And a Coke came out. (laughs) And it was late at night. And I was completely freaked out. (laughs) You know, you're already altered. And you're already wondering, where is this all leading anyway? And am I decompensating? And I know I'm regressed, but am I going crazy? And I've heard people go crazy on these retreats. You know, you're already a little apprehensive. And... um, then the Coke came out, and I, I didn't even take it. I didn't want to touch it. And, but I became agitated. And fortunately, I had a meeting with the teacher the next day. And I went in. It was Jack. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in such a weird state. This really weird thing happened. I'm in such a weird state. And he said, you know, you're actually often in a weird state. (laughs) Like, have you thought about what it's like to be really furious with somebody? Or to be, and he started this listing, you know, these intense states that we, he said, but they're just so familiar to you, you don't even think they're weird. So it was just pointing to the unfamiliarity of having a concentrated mind and some... um, energy in that attention. The second story, because it's time to stop. Um, 
about concentration, it's not really a story. It's a teaching that I shared the other day and some of you asked me to write it down. And So some of you weren't there because you don't, you prefer to stay silent and don't come to the Brahma Vihara sit. But this is a teaching from um, Nisargadatta and I didn't find it in a book. I was actually watching, this was before the days of YouTube. It was when we had those VHS videotapes and somebody had a videotape of his, him teaching and I was watching this tape and when he said this, I was riveted and just like wrote it down. But it's about how we can use our attention. So you don't need five, you know, single-spaced pages on samadhi. Just this is plenty, probably for the rest of our lives. Um, he said, by shifting the focus of attention which we become able to do, the more mindful we are um, and attentive, by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the interior witness of the thing And this capacity to shift the focal point of consciousness, I call love. This willingness, I would say, to exchange self for another, and it could be another person, um, or the willingness to receive the moment, without going towards it and needing it to be any certain way. Uh, It could be, I know this is confusing sometimes to think that it could be a tree or a rock or any kind of creature, the grasses, but just play with it and see. By shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I walk for a few moments in its shoes. I become the interior witness, the subjectivity of that thing, creature, person. And this capacity and this willingness to shift the focal point of consciousness, I call love. It's really empathy, the union of uh, metta and karuna, of love and compassion. And, And it's really a teaching about how we can be both the subject and object of experience. We can just kind of drop the whole thing and be neither. Um, we have this capacity and when we are willing to focus our attention and then to focus our attention somewhere besides, you know, here, um, we discover a whole world of empathy, love, and intimate connection.
So let's just sit for a moment. And as you practice walking, sitting, whatever you're doing this evening, just remind yourself to see these qualities in your own experience and have the trust, faith, confidence that they are growing in strength and that they will inevitably suffuse all the moments of your life more and more. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.